Welcome to Faith Covenant Church's podcast. Please enjoy the next installment of our Live Your Why series. I hope that you are feeling energized this morning. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to add my welcome to you this morning. Those of you joining us both in person and online, it is good to be together. Uh, We are in our second week of our new series through the month of January that we're calling Live Your Why. And if you were with us last week, I had suggested there are a variety of things that I feel like God is weaving together in our life as a faith community in this season and in the days ahead. And so we're going to be talking about a variety of different things, but trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to help connect the dots and help us to understand how all these different things going on are a part of the same mission and vision that he's given us as a faith community, that he's given us as individual believers to be stepping into and living our why in the season ahead. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the message last week online if you weren't here. Uh, I gave four different invitations. We'll just go over those real quick so that you're aware of them if you weren't here last week. Number one is you can go back and you can review the Know Your Why series that we uh, uh, talked about in the fall. In September, we had six weeks laying the biblical foundations for how we can know our why, we can discover our greatest purpose and meaning in life through our relationship with Jesus. And so we'd encourage you to go back and review those messages as a foundation for uh, what we're doing now in terms of exploring how we live our why. I invited everyone to receive in this New Year season the words of Isaiah 55 as, a, as an invitation from God and a vision for our life moving forward that no matter where we're at and what we're experiencing today, as this poetic vision invites us to imagine a different possible future for ourselves. And I had shared that God had given me uh, the verse Isaiah 55, 12, a couple of years ago as an inspiration that has helped me through the last two years of the pandemic that says, you will go out with joy and you will be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. We talked about how this was a vision that God gave to his people when they were in exile in Babylon. And so as we continue to live in the exile of the COVID pandemic and all of the struggles that we're going through, uh, receive these words and go back and read the whole chapter 55 and see where the God's Holy Spirit might be inviting you to look up and to look out and to see that he has a plan and a vision and a hope for your life and for mine. To explore that further, I also invited everyone who is interested to start coming and meeting together on fourth Tuesday nights of the month starting in February. So it'll be February 22nd, 22222, something like that. And uh, on these Tuesday nights, uh, we will talk about uh, where God is leading us, uh, our mission and vision. We'll do some practical training on how to begin to live our discipleship together as we've been imagining for a number of years. And we'll also be able to share God's stories and hear where God is working among us and pray for one another. So I encourage you to put that on your calendar. Join us on fourth Tuesday starting in February. And then the last invitation last week was to come to our annual meeting on Sunday, March 6th. We've delayed our 
our annual meeting this year in order to have more time to, to talk about where God is leading us, to explore some of the challenges that we're experiencing as, as a result of the pandemic and some other changes that we've been through, but also to make sure that we are collectively on the same page with where we believe God is leading us to collectively choose how to move forward together as a faith community. And so in that extra time, we're going to try and have some focus groups and some town halls. We're going to be sharing more about where we're at financially as a church and how you all can participate in casting the vision for where we go and then helping to support that as we move into the future. Uh, I said pretty emphatically last week that if you call Faith Covenant Church your home, especially if you are a covenant partner here at the church, you need to be at this meeting. This is an all hands on deck meeting for us as a church. And if at all humanly possible, we want you to be there. So put that on your calendar. Sunday, March 6th, we'll celebrate in worship. We'll have some food together. And then we'll have our congregational meeting where we'll talk about next step as a church. One more invitation I want to add before we jump into the message this morning formally. Uh, today, if, as you heard, is coffee with the pastor, so I'd love to gather with anybody who's newer to the church who hasn't had a chance to meet me and some of the staff and leaders over in Snelling Hall. We'll have some donuts for you, and we'd just love to meet you and find a little, a little bit more about who you are. But then also know that in three weeks, we're going to have our next step lunch, which is our first uh, uh, opportunity for you to hear more about what it means to be a part of our church, uh, what it means to become a covenant partner. Uh, we believe that covenant partnership is different than just like joining a, a gym membership, right? It's becoming part of the family. So we'd love to talk with you more about that. And if you uh, at that point would like to consider joining the church, we will be receiving new covenant partners in worship on February 20th at the service there, and that would be a great opportunity to get into the family before our family meeting on March 6th. So I just want to call that out as something that you might be interested in. Now I just want to invite you to, again, let's pause and invite God's Holy Spirit to speak through his word to us this morning and to invite us to imagine where he might be calling us forward individually as Christians, as followers of Jesus, and collectively as the church of Jesus Christ in this place. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we thank you that we can be still and know that you are with us, that we are in your hands, that you have given us a vision for the future, not only a future of life in this world, but a future of you in eternity. And that we know that no matter what this world throws at us, even death is not the last word, but we will wake up in the land of glory and we will be able to sing your praises with all the saints who have gone before in eternity, fulfilling the very purpose and reason why you've created us, to worship you and to bring glory to your name. And so we want to worship you this morning through listening to your word. Would you speak a word to each one of us? Give us a word that we need to hear and to know as a part of your calling in our lives, so that as we go from here today, we go with a next step that we can take as disciples of Jesus, as we seek to bring the gospel message to a lost and a hurting world. We ask this in his name. Amen. So we said, you know, knowing your why in our Know Your Why series is not, is not only a question of our passion and what drives us, right? But it, it's a question of our, our purpose and what, what draws us forward. Why do you do what you do in life? Why do you make the choices that you make? Why are you here today? Why are your priorities the priorities that they are? 
See, the reality is that most often what we do with our lives and the choices that we make are driven by the deeper question of why. And so it's really important for us to to understand that God's invitation to relationship with him through his son Jesus is a part of discovering the why that he intended for us when he created us, and that his will for us is to see us live into our, our deepest sense of purpose and find our greatest meaning and value as we live out our lives in him. And so to know your why is really the important first step, but to live your why is the second step. See, part of our mission and vision as a church is to help you and to help one another to discover, but then to live out our why together. So knowing and living our why as a faith community collectively is an equally important part of how we learn to live out our why as a church. And if you were with us last week, I said that the church today has a choice. To choose to die to itself in order to live, or to die as a result of its resistance to change. And when I say the church needs to change, I would suspect that that many of us maybe have some ideas that that popped into our head when we think about changing the church, and and that some of those things might be about like church music, or church decor, or, or, or the kind of coffee we serve in the lobby. When I say that we need to change the church, It might depend on who you are and what your experience of church has been and where you're at in life today. But I want to be clear that when I say we as a church need to change, and not just our church, I think the the church in America, especially in Western culture, needs to change. I don't mean we need to change our music on Sunday mornings. I don't mean we need to change the style of our decor. I don't mean we need to change the color of the carpet, although I am always good for really good quality coffee in the lobby after church on Sunday. What I'm suggesting is that if we're going to be successful in making the changes that I believe we need to make as a faith community to have a vital and a vibrant ministry and mission in the 21st century in the United States, in the Northwest Territories, where we were planted in 1877 as a mission outpost on this mission field that God has called us to serve, it will not be by what we do on Sunday mornings, but it will be by everything we do between Sunday mornings. When I say we need to change, I don't mean we need to stop reaching some people in order to start reaching other people. I don't mean we need to stop reaching older people in order to reach younger people. I don't mean we need to stop reaching existing believers in order to reach new believers. In fact, that very kind of either-or thinking is a part of what we need to change. What I'm suggesting is that we need to fundamentally change the very culture of what Christian community is all about in the 21st century. We need to change the very way we think about church, the very way we see church. We have to think differently so that we can act differently, so that we can see a different outcome to the results of our ministries. You see, when we talk about changing culture in the church, we have to talk about changing the outcomes that we expect to see not changing the appearance of what it looks like. See, appearances can be attractive, right? 
and can be a part of how we seek to do our best in worshiping God. Of course, we want to bring our best to God. Of course, we want to, to do things well. Of course, we want things to look nice and to be attractive to people. Uh, that's, of course, part of who we are as human beings. But they, they, appearances don't necessarily lead to the outcomes that we believe the Bible teaches us a healthy church should be seeing. The results that we should see happening in the transformation, in the change in people's lives. We know that attractional things can lead to an increase in numbers in the church, right? But even more, with more people coming, they may still produce the same results that we're seeing today, which in the reality is if you do any kind of sociological research or studies, you know that church is dwindling in the United States. It's not growing. Our influence as Christians has been marginalized. We are no longer seen as a majority voice in the culture. In fact, more and more, we are being uh, pigeonholed as being a potential threat to the culture around us. And so part of our question is, if we are no longer able to lead from a position of dominance in our culture, how do we learn to lead from a position of weakness? For those of us who have grown up as the dominant people in a culture and even in a, in a world who have come from a world of Christendom for hundreds of years where the church has dominated the governments and the vision of the world and are no longer there, how do we lead? How do we influence people? We don't know how to do that anymore because we've never been in that position. And yet also, if you're a student of sociology and history, you know that throughout history, the times and the places where the church has grown the most is when the church has been in persecution. When it's not been the dominant voice, when it's had to run and hide and begin to meet in homes and to, and to, to fear the government officials and to learn to love each other and help one another to be successful in life in spite of the culture around us not being welcoming, accommodating, or even really liking who we are. I said last fall that I believe our current patterns of church are designed more to create good church people than they are to create good disciples of Jesus. You see, the reality is you can be a really good church person and not be following Jesus. You see, this isn't about pursuing the latest trend in church work. It's not about becoming, uh, uh, following some new church strategy that's going to give us a leg up on, on the competition down the street. In fact, this has been a challenge to Christian believers in every age. At its core, I want to suggest to us this morning that this is Jesus' challenge to his disciples at the very beginning and in every age throughout history. If we go back and we look at the story of Jesus and his disciples in the Gospel of Mark, we see that after Jesus had miraculously fed thousands of people by multiplying a few loaves of bread, right, and he physically heals a man who, who couldn't see, he, he restores his sight. Then it says in chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see, in Jesus' call to follow him as his disciples, there's an inherent call to fundamentally change the very culture of our lives. 
And this means more than simply tweaking the outward appearances. It means changing the very outcomes we expect and being very clear on what the kingdom of God looks like when it manifests itself in this world. Last week, I said that we are at an inflection point, and I was going to talk about that week, this week. It's kind of a new term for me. I've been hearing people use it a lot, so I looked it up, and I thought, oh, that's an interesting concept. And I think that as a church, Faith Covenant Church is at an inflection point in our life as a faith community. Now, I'm not a math person, but an inflection point is apparently a math term. So you mathematicians out there might you know, be able to help school me on this a little bit more. But my understanding is that uh, an inflection point is the point in a graph where the function changes, and, and the function changes from a negative value, which makes the graph curve concave downward, <laughs> to a positive value where it makes the, the graph turn concave upwards. So I have some visuals, if we, I don't know if we can pull those up, but inflection point is the point on the graph at which the curvature or the trajectory changes. So you can see the red dot there that indicates where the inflection point is. See, and the inflection point is different than the turning point. The turning point is where the, the curve actually changes direction and, and goes in a new direction. But, but the Inflection point is where the value changes and the trajectory of that curve actually begins to change. Does that make sense? And so if you kind of extrapolate that out, the downward curve changes at this point, but then the turning point comes at the bottom and you begin to see the change, the curve upward again. I'd like to suggest that in some ways we could think about the pandemic as an inflection point, right? The beginning of the pandemic began a change in the trajectory of our future that, that we are now experiencing as a turning point in how we approach church and what church is going to look like in the new normal that's coming. And there's a lot of conversation going on about that you know, among pastors, online, and probably among you and your friends as well, perhaps. And it's led to a turning point for how we begin to minister to people not only in person but online and how we begin to connect with people who we don't see every Sunday anymore? And how do we begin to be relevant to a culture around us who, who, who doesn't really see or miss the, the church that, that wasn't being able to gather? I think that's one of the biggest highlights for me about the pandemic is when we had to stop meeting, man, it impacted us deeply, right? But do you realize that the culture around us, the, the non-church culture didn't miss us one bit? That concerns me. Does it mean, as I think it might suggest, that as a church we've become irrelevant to our culture? And if so, what do we do about that? You see, an inflection point is the starting point where change begins to happen. It's first a change in a value before it becomes a change in the actual outcome of the trajectory of the curve. An inflection point, as it's change in value, is the, is the heart change that God invites us to experience to begin to have our human worldly values transformed into kingdom of God values so that we can begin to see a different outcome and pattern to our lives and our behavior. We know that's how the gospel says the Christian life works. And the same is true, I want to suggest, for faith communities, for churches. 
Missiologist Alan Hurst says that most churches fail to innovate. Innovate is a fancy word for for change, right? For for transformation. It's moving from from one experience that we used to have to a a new experience. It's It's a new normal. Most churches fail to innovate and to change because they fail to understand how true innovation happens. A change that, an innovation is a change that fundamentally alters the way we experience life together, right? Think about it. Uh, when you, did you guys ever talk on the phone to your girlfriend or boyfriend when you were a teenager and you had that long thing cord attached to the receiver and you had to go like hide in the closet and talk for like three hours in there, right? Well, when the wireless phone came out, wow, that was a big change, Right? It was a change, but it wasn't really an innovation because it didn't fundamentally change the way we lived our lives. You still had to be at home and hide in the closet to have privacy and talk on the phone. You just got rid of that cord. But now think about what has happened with the advent of the cell phone and the smartphone. The cell phone has fundamentally altered the way we experience and live life together. Just look at the lives of our teenagers. (laughs) And so I want to suggest that through Alan Hirsch's study and and what we learn about innovation is that there's really three elements to true innovation. And I think we can apply this to ourselves personally if we're seeking to experience life change in our relationship to Jesus. The first thing is that most churches fail to experience innovation because they have a failure of imagination. And, and we, we've lost the ability to some extent to imagine a different possible future. Because all we know is what we're familiar with. We know what we've grown up with. We know what we've experienced. But if we're going to talk about doing church in a completely different way and changing the culture of the church, how do we even begin to know what that would look like? And without a, an imagination that's inspired by God's word and God's spirit and collectively being able to challenge one another to see things differently and to imagine a different possible future, we have no hope of being able to change because we're just going to go back to what we know and do what we're familiar with. The second piece of the formula is a failure of implementation. We fail to be able to follow through on the, say, on the things that we say that we want to do. Uh, strategic leaders will tell you that most strategic plans sit on the shelf. <laughs> Why? Because of failure of implementation. We have all these good ideas. Say we do get good imagination. We have all these wonderful ideas. We can plan more things than we could ever hope to do in this century. And then all those good ideas sit on the shelf because we fail to implement and follow through on any of the ideas that we've come up with. But the third ingredient is the biggest challenge for most people, most organizations, and most churches, he says. And that's a failure of integration. A failure of integration. Integration is when the activity that you are pursuing is no longer something that you intentionally have to work to add into your schedule. It's something you just now do because it's a part of your life. It becomes the new normal. It's just the way we do it around here. And when you've achieved true integration, now you've experienced innovation of life and culture and community. 
We could say that imagination has to do with casting vision. And implementation has to do with being able to train and equip people how to live out the the values and the ideas that we want them to pursue. And then integration becomes a new lifestyle that we're living out together until we achieve a new normal and a new experience of what it means to follow Jesus together as a faith community. You see, imagination, which is the first one that I just want to focus in on today, and we'll pick up the others later, has to do with our ability to see, and as I said before, to imagine a different possible future. But if all we know is the church that we've experienced from the past and the 20th century modern mindset of Christianity is what we've lived with and what we've inherited, how do we begin to imagine what a church could be and could do that's different from that in the 21st century? How do we even begin to know where to start? And isn't this true for our personal lives as well? Isn't it often that we we get stuck in patterns of thinking about our own lives and understanding who we are in certain ways that prevent us from being able to experience the kinds of life changes that we might want to experience? Maybe it's because of a past trauma that we can't get let go of. Maybe it's because of repeated patterns of failure that we've we've stopped believing that we will ever be able to change. Maybe it's something that that for you is that that nagging habit or hang up that you just can't get over and because of these obstacles of what we've experienced and we've stopped imagining that that God could change our experience of life, that we could become something more or different than we are today. And I think part of the challenge is that the older we get, the harder it is for us to believe that we can imagine a different possible future because our future gets shorter and shorter and shorter, right? Right? And the problem is that the older we get and the shorter our future gets, the more conservative we come and we want to hang on to what we're familiar with and to hang on to what we're comfortable with because in the few years we have left, shouldn't we take care of ourselves? And I get it. I see the end coming. I've talked about this with our staff and with other pastors. You know, at 54, my birthday was last Sunday. I got like 10 years left in this ministry stuff, and then kind of, I'm done. What can you do in 10 years? Well, gosh, it seems to take a lot longer to change than just a couple years, right? Have you guys ever heard of audio stereo, auto stereograms? <laughs> I'm sure you've heard of them, maybe not by name. Auto stereograms are taken from stereograms and it's where two images are placed side by side in, in the you know, uh, 18th century. You had to look through like this scope that married the two images together. Well, with computers, we've been able to hide images within this kind of abstract image. So you have a 2D image that you're looking at on the screen, but within this 2D image is hidden a three-dimensional image. But do you know why you can't see the three-dimensional image? Because you have to retrain how you focus your eyes in order to be able to see it. Isn't that a great illustration? And so for people who, I don't know if you've ever played with these before, but it takes a while to get used to it. But once you start getting the hang of how they work, you can start to figure it out a little bit. Apparently what you have to do is you have to learn to focus your eyes at a point beyond the image. Right? We're conditioned and trained to look at the image to focus our eyes at the surface level. But if, 
with this auto stereogram, you, you focus your eyes at a point beyond the image. Somehow it's designed to bring into focus this three-dimensional image that you can't see in some other way. And so you have to, you have to work at it. It's uncomfortable and it's awkward and you got to figure out, you know, you, it gets blurry and you cross your eyes this way and you bring them back. And it, it, but all of a sudden, if you work at it long enough, that image comes into view and you're just like, oh my gosh, it really is there. You have to train your eyes to see differently. You have to learn to focus your vision beyond the surface of what you can see to beyond what you see on the surface. And, and, and there's more that can come to life that you didn't even realize was there. Isn't it true that, that when we have too many things going on in our lives and we're, we're stressed and we're overwhelmed and it's too hard for us to focus on what God might be wanting us to do in the moment, that it's really easy to focus in on the surface level of the circumstances going on in our lives, in our church? And is it just possible that when we allow our fear and anxiety and our desire to control life around us, to, to care for our own comfort, that, that we miss the ability to focus beyond the horizon, to see what God would want us to see in the three dimensions of his kingdom vision for our lives? They say if you're going to practice auto stereograms, you have to learn to relax your eyes and so that they can do their own thing and find the right focus. Or how about paradigm shifts? Did you guys ever play with paradigm shifts in school? Right? A paradigm shift is an image that if you look at it one way, you see one thing. But if you train your mind to see it a different way, it, it appears completely different. This is a, a common one, right? What do you see? Right? Is it a young woman with her head turning to the right? Or is it, a, is it an older woman you know, with, with a flower coming out the front? It's both, Right? There's another image that kind of an artist has uh, depicted both of them side by side where you can kind of highlight which one you're seeing. Or another familiar one was the vase, right? If you see the candle, candlestick or the vase, if you look at it one way, it's a vase. If you look at it another way, it's two faces. Or, or one more. This one was fun for me. I hadn't seen this one before. I liked it. It's a duck. It's a rabbit! Okay, how many people saw a duck? How many people saw a rabbit? It's both, right? It all depends on your ability to see it in a certain way. We have to learn to see our future with new eyes. We have to allow God to be able to inspire our imagination so that we can see that his possible future for us as a church might be more and different than we ever could have imagined. Proverbs 29, 18 tells us, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law Happy is he. Now that's the King James Version. They changed it in the NIV. NIV reads, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. Or the ESV version combines them in a way that says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who keeps the law. Behind this idea is, is the understanding that God's revelation of himself, that he began when he spoke creation into being and has continued to speak through the, the prophets and his people, and ultimately Hebrews tells us that he's spoken an 
an ultimate final word in the incarnation of his son, Jesus in the world, who is the living word who has become flesh in him. God's revelation of himself and his kingdom through this word that he has given us creates in us the ability to have a holy imagination to see God's kingdom future for each one of us that becomes independent of what our life experience has been to this point. In Jesus, God has given us the word that has been captured through the story of God's people in the Bible. Through Jesus as the living word of God, he has formed a community of people based on the word that, that, that is a community where, where he has poured out his spirit. And through, through Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit has given us the empowerment to have the mind of Christ among us. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And then in, in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh. And his dwelling and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Men and women, to see with new eyes is the invitation of Jesus to allow our minds and our hearts and our imaginations to be transformed by the word of God that is among us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we live by faith and not by sight. It's interesting how if you go through and you study the story of Jesus and the Gospels and all of his disciples, Jesus was really into helping people form a holy imagination, right? What was the whole purpose of all the parables? Right? You can go through story after story, and Jesus could have come and said, hey, let me give you four basic principles to find your way to God. But he didn't do that. He came and told stories. He gave illustrations. He used metaphors. Why? Because he wants to spark our holy imagination, because we have to be able to see things differently in order to be able to imagine the different possible future that the kingdom of God has in store for us. One of the fun questions that Jesus got asked as he was going around teaching based on the Old Testament law, right? Hey, Jesus, who's your neighbor? If I were to ask you today or you went to any of your neighbors that maybe if they're not even Christians and you said, who's your neighbor? Most of us could probably give a pretty good answer, right? We could identify maybe a few of the people who live next door to us, or we'd say the people that we work with or, or people around. Maybe somebody sitting next to you in church today is your neighbor, where did Jesus go with that question? Let's look at Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, turn and look at the person next to you. Go to the person you live next. No, that's not what he said, is it? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 
a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, another religious dude, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, filthy Samaritans, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine. Then he put a man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, Jesus said. The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. You see, the question they should have been asking Jesus that his answer implies is not, who is my neighbor? But what does it look like to be a good neighbor? And the way you ask the question completely changes the way you may answer See, he wasn't concerned that they knew what they ought to do or knew what the religious law said or knew how to be a good Christian or a good believer, but they actually went out and did it. They actually intentionally pursued the outcomes that reflected the values of the kingdom of God among them. Which leads us to the next point that I'd like us to really be able to zero in on, and we're going to talk a lot more about this in the days and probably even the years ahead in our church and in the church, is we identify our culture by what we value. We identify our culture by what we value. If we want to seek to know what needs to change and how to change, we have to go back and say, well, what is it that you value? Because if you're not valuing the right things, you might be behaving in ways that you think are going to lead to change, but are only going to lead to the same results that you've always been getting. And the reality is that we identify what we value by the outcomes we invest in and the behaviors we give ourselves to. See, we can identify our culture by how we prioritize our time. Didn't Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also? Where you invest your time, your talent, and your treasure speaks to what you value. And we can see what we prioritize by what we choose to invest in. Right? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. One of the things that I want to suggest that we can be talking about in the days ahead is that what we value here at our church, we can begin to discern and determine by how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we choose to measure, and what we choose to reward. Maybe think about those questions for your own life, in your family, in your workplace, in the circles of friends that, that you run in, you know? How do you spend your time? If you were to look at your calendar and, and, and see where all of your time goes, if you think about your time as a bank account, and they're saying today that, that in our modern culture, time is the most valuable resource that anyone has. And again, the older we get, the more we know that's true, right? Where does your time go? 
What do you invest in? What do you spend it on? What does that say about what you truly value? You can say you value something up here intellectually, but when push comes to shove where you're investing your life, what does that really tell you? How do you spend your money? Look at your checking account. Look at, look at where all of your expenses go. What does your spending habits suggest you truly value? As a church, what do we choose to measure? What do we typically measure? Butts in seats, bank account, <laughs> how fast we're growing, right? What do we measure that defines success for us as human beings? And how does that need to perhaps change? What do we choose to reward? What do we celebrate? If we begin with the end in mind and our starting point is to know where we're headed and where God might be calling us to, the outcomes that we expect to see will define the values that we have. Now, I know we're uh, uh, over time. I just want to wrap up by giving us a quick um, lesson on how I think we can begin to move forward together based on Jesus' call, and we'll go more into it in the weeks ahead. Matthew 4.19, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, fish for people. Follow me, I will make you fish for people. We can define a disciple of Jesus someone who follows him, becomes more and more like him, and who participates in making disciples of Jesus. So our job then as a church is to seek to find out how do we do a better job of developing people and equipping people to be able to follow Jesus, to become more like him, and to actually participate in the mission of Jesus in the world. And I'd suggest to you that that's what our three missional words, connect, grow, and serve, are really all about for us. You see, the reality is that people don't come to church. People are the church. And so the shift that we need to begin to make is to understand that God is not calling us to grow the church, but to develop people for the kingdom of God and to together discover our greatest purpose and calling for serving him. So I look forward to this journey together and we will talk more as we go along, but another powerful vision that Jesus has given us to spark our imaginations is the communion table where he invited his disciples on the night before he went to the cross to be able to, to understand with their imagination in a way that they never would have been able to understand with their hearts and their minds what it means that Jesus came to give his life for you and for me and to call us to be a part of this amazing community called the church. And so as we come to communion this morning, I just want to invite you to pray with me and to invite God's spirit to continue to speak to us and to draw us forward in this season. Holy God, we do thank you. That you've given us minds and imaginations to be able to engage with your word and your vision for life and for the kingdom of God. We pray that you would give us the ability to see with new eyes, to hear with new ears, and together to encourage one another to be able to open ourselves to the new future that you have for us, not only individually, but as a faith community together. And God, as we come to this holy table, we ask that you would bless these elements so that you would remind us of the deep love that the sacrifice of Jesus represents for us. And that as we participate in this meal together, we are reminded that you have called us.
live in unity together as the body of Christ who share the very same spirit of Christ so that we can be a testimony to the lost and hurting world around us that you are alive and well and that the kingdom of God is for them. We ask this in Jesus' name.